0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted today to have as my guest Howard Friedman, a data scientist and health economist at Columbia University. He is the author of a forthcoming book, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. It's coming out from the University of California Press uh, in about a month in May of uh, 2020. And it is a, a particularly timely book as we go through a kind of a tumultuous period in history, though, in in fact, there is a very, very long history on the core question that that uh howard friedman raises which is the dollar value or the whatever currency of the trade or any numerical value or material value that has been uh placed on life in in history and uh how it is currently meaning over the last several decades uh uh, done howard um thank you so much for for being on the show
1: oh thank you it's a pleasure
0: Can you just, you know, lead us off again that your your book is a a primer for people who are interested in this question now, and it doesn't have to do just with the current crisis. It has to do with the legal system. It has to do with commercial and liability law, has to do with basic insurance issues and and, um, uh, dangerous jobs, you know, risky jobs and so forth. It's it runs throughout uh, modern society. But, you know, can you describe a little bit the kind of the background as to how you Came to this project and some of the, the you know philosophical issues that uh, you almost uh, most uh, people don't get to when thinking about when a, a dollar value is placed on on someone's life.
1: I'd be happy to. And one of the things that really started my interest in this was the September 11th Victims Compensation Fund, uh, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about later. But it started a process in me in terms of thinking about different ways that human life is valued, Uh, some of it related to consulting work that I've done over the years, uh, very much in the healthcare space, to some of the other work that I've done related to civil courts, and really just starting to understand that these price tags, these valuations on human life are somewhat ubiquitous, that they're seen in so many different areas of our life that many people don't recognize that not only these price tags happen, but also that often they're quite unfair through different biases, whether those are sex-based biases, racial biases, location biases, that the price tag put on life is critical because lives that are less valued are less protected. And then the last thing that I, I noticed was this continuous pattern of when the public identified something that they found to be highly unjust, that they could challenge it and often make a difference. So those were kind of things that resonated with me as I started looking broadly at pulling together these different concepts into a book.
0: It's, uh, you know, it is eye-catching. And the first uh, kind of section or chapter of the book is on 9-11. As a historian, uh, I I I just will comment that uh, this is a 5,000-year-old problem. Uh, In in commerce, uh, uh, the value of a laborer in politics, the last couple of centuries, the uh, workers' movement, the value of labor, whole systems of economics based on the value of labor, which you, you know, can then uh, roll up into one person's whole life, the whole notion of a net present value, a core concept in finance, all of these can be linked to this this question in some way or another, not to mention the fact that the insurance industry has been trying to figure this out for cent- – uh, with the rise of modern statistics – uh, for centuries, uh, how to properly price uh, life insurance policies. Uh, your book, however, for those who might uh, be less interested in the distant history and more interested in say the last couple of decades, your book focuses on that and you know covers incidents where uh, and it might be surprising for some, everything from automobiles and uh, industrial manufacturers uh, to how this issue is everywhere not as you mentioned, and of course, in the human, ju- uh, you know, the, the justice system uh, in our society, it really is um, omnipresent uh, in, in, in many uh, parts of um, a modern society.
1: It, it certainly is. And, and I really appreciate the point you raised about this isn't a new question. Uh, in fact, in my book, I insert a few references to some historical cases going back hundreds of years, but I actually ended up pulling in some of the references to the Bible itself because there is some discussions of different values of human life even presented in in that particular uh, classic. So I I think that you're right. This is certainly something that has been a discussion uh, for thousands of years and will continue to be so. And and one of the disappointments that some of my uh, readers and certainly my editor had was that there isn't a single simple answer.
0: Uh, how yeah, you- I mean, that's that's really the book is that uh, <laughs> there if, if, if we'll be discussing this in five thousand years because there is no simple answer. And what your book shows and uh, it, it, it it's it's messy in a fashion that but it's uh, you know, laid out clearly is that uh, uh, this issue is resolved in different ways, in different contexts. So maybe we should shift to that, and you, you really set that up with 911 do you want to kind of provide a framework cuz I, I people a casual reader might assume that the value of a human life after 500 years particularly with insurance companies thinking about this nonstop that the the issue would be have would have been resolved and that there is a standard approach and it turns out not even close
1: not even close exactly so maybe starting with september 11th is a great, great place so in that particular situation Congress had created a fund uh, using taxpayer money, and they put some restraints on it. They said that economic value must be considered. Uh, That's a little bit of a reflection over to our civil court system. And by doing that, they also put uh, Special Administrator Kenneth Feinberg in charge. Uh, But they gave him a lot of leeway, and he took uh, advantage of that leeway to try and basically narrow the range. What I mean by that is he specifically said there's a minimum value, no matter who that person was who died, the family of that victim would be offered at least $250,000. So there was a minimum number. He added uh, additional amounts for the number of dependents the person had, but then a lot of it was also scaled by income. And as a result, the highest payout to the family of someone who died was over 7 million. So there was a 30x range uh, An injury actually uh, had ended up being the highest total payout over eight billion. So in that case, injury was worth more than life itself. But what because they were going to have
0: to suffer suffer for the remaining lifetime with the consequences of the injury, and that would come at a higher cost. Uh-huh.
1: Absolutely, the healthcare cost, the inability to work. So the, it's not just the lost income, but the health care cost. That that's what drove uh, that particular example. But it, what's interesting in the way this was approached was. There was so much public dissatisfaction. Now, about 98% of the families that were offered a settlement eventually took it. Uh, But much of the public either rejected the idea that you didn't think that this fund should have existed or had serious issues with the idea that the payouts would have such a large range of 30x between the lowest and highest amount. Perhaps not recognizing that the range in salary is massively higher minimum wage converts to about $15,000 a year, while CEOs of some companies earn hundreds of millions of dollars. That said, Kenneth Feinberg, just a few years after the conclusion of that fund, himself said that it would have been simpler if he had just valued all lives the same. Easier to administer, and it would have been more acceptable to the public. So he
0: Did he he, make a a moral argument, or did he make a practical administrative argument about
1: uh, (laughs) it? He he made very practical arguments. So one of was administratively it would have been you know trivial. Here this is the number uh, everyone's getting accepted or or don't. Um, so it, there was a practical argument to it. Uh, but the practical argument wasn't just from an administrative point of view. He was very concerned about the fact that many in the public had issues with the huge range, and uh, it for some people it spoke to a level of unfairness that the inequalities in income were then getting perpetuated in in this price tag as well. Of course, Kenneth Feinberg has had the opportunity to be the special administrator of many funds. And after the Boston Marathon bombing, he was brought in again. Now, he, in this case, uh, was administering a fund with private money. The constraints that the federal government had placed on him were no longer there. And he did exactly what he said he would do. The families of the victims of the Boston Marathon were all paid the exact same amount.
0: Was there a reaction to that uh, or what the furor was less than his first approach?
1: I don't think there was fur furor at all. I mean, you, I, I'm sure if you looked carefully enough online, you would find something, but it wasn't the level of public reaction that the September 11th Victims Compensation Fund had.
0: It is an unfortunate situation that we now have a very experienced administrator who is actually getting pretty good at the job.
1: Uh, unfortunate, but at the same time, uh, I'm happy to have people who have the experience and have learned from it versus someone who is responsible for allocating hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars and not really having uh, a sense for what is a a good, effective and fair approach. So there's, it's an unfortunate thing to have people with expertise in this, but the reality is it's better than having someone who has no idea uh, what they should be doing in the situation.
0: So, so let's go through the many different ways the learning his learning curve on nine eleven because it it really is a uh, you use it as a window through the book to highlight the different ways that people uh, have put or can put uh, dollar value in life. and uh, unfortunately, it's fascinating. So uh, how about a you know shift to a summary version of of the different ways that are are addressed?
1: Absolutely. So you know, his first window was that it had to reflect similarly what might happen in a civil court. And when you look at civil courts, of course, there are um, you might have negligent uh, situations where someone dies due to it could be a product failure uh, for a company or it could be, you know, simple uh, situations of someone perhaps um, you know, fails to do something that they should have done. Right. Either a company or an individual. That's one case. Civil court. Uh, Criminal court—it's not about dollars, but we can look at how human life is valued in terms of the punishments they receive. Right. So, So in criminal court, we're not looking for a dollar settlement. We're looking to see what measure of justice does society look to obtain, depending on who was the victim, and potentially who was the criminal. From there, we start kind of thinking about the fact that the regulatory system specifically does cost benefit analysis where they use a dollar figure for human life as part of their benefits so if you're looking for example at trying to adjust the regulations on how much arsenic is allowed in the water or how much uh, pollutants are allowed from a factory well regulators have to look to see what is the benefit in terms of less disease and less death and that death is converted to a dollar figure Using something called value of statistical life, which these Hmm. days is roughly about $10 million per person. We'll dig into that more, but it's the same number for everyone, regardless of age, regardless of how wealthy they are, regardless of where they live, regardless of anything.
0: So equality. And this notion, just to set set things up, the value of a statistical life. This concept, going to have to highlight because it and and return to it immediately because it does. It is uh, kind of the base from which things deviate in the course of the book, uh, either more or less, and different way. The base approach is the value of a statistical life, and then uh, our kind of open society, depending on the context, government, business, civil justice. They all vary. They they deviate in one way or another from this. Is that a kind of a fair summary of its role? Uh,
1: well, the way it's used is the perspective. And you know, when you started out at the beginning, you talked about the different ways that life is valued. One of the key questions is what's the perspective and the purpose? So this value of a statistical life that's used by regulatory agencies, it's meant to reflect the value an individual you know, has to is willing to take on more risk. So how much money do you need to be paid to take on an incremental, let's say, one in 10,000 chance of dying for something? So Mm -hmm. that number is used with a purpose in mind, and it's a society purpose. The next set of analysis talks about for-profit companies, and they're not thinking about society. They're thinking about their own bottom line. And so their financial analysis, which can be framed as a cost-benefit analysis, looks at... What are the costs associated with, let's say, making cars safer? And, you know, in their case, their benefits are what would it cost them in terms of fines from regulatory agencies, in losses in civil court and damage to brand, or incremental injuries and debt. And there's some famous, famous car cases with that. But digging further along in that process, we talk about healthcare, where choices about metrics make a huge difference. Are, am I trying to optimize my dollar spent per life saved or my dollar spent per life year saved or dollar spent per quality adjusted life year saved? Choice of metric will change where I allocate resources. In Life insurance is a fascinating example, one that you framed up for us right at the beginning, because in life insurance, it's a rare case where you as the individual have the opportunity to put that price tag on yourself. You can decide what's the total coverage I want? And there's that can be done that can be done for that. Although not not everyone sits there and crunches numbers on a spreadsheet. They often will just look and say, what can I afford? But life insurance is a unique uh, opportunity. And then uh, of course there are these other influences that play a role because one thing that has been shown over the last few decades is humans are not perfect calculators and there's lots of intrinsic biases. We have cognitive biases, influences. So That's a a bit of the walkthrough of the book itself, but would love to dig into any of the other specific topics.
0: Yeah, well, let's 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 go through, uh, you know, a couple of the methods at the highlight that, that Feinberg used, because then that leads into the other instances. You mentioned the automobile, the uh, you know, I, 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 there's the the uh, GM one and then the Ford Pinto, there's Union Carbide, there's Altria or Philip Morris companies. And then we get to the legal system, which is an entirely different matter. And the EPA, there's just a lot of things. So in, in um, you know, I, I think that, uh you know the underlying point that you come to is in this kind of uh, the with the many choices that are made, with no one answer. What that creates, what I found ultimately interesting in the book, and it's highlighted over and over again, is that there is a pattern, and it tends to be, you know, there there human lives are not valued equally, and it just shows up over and over again, whether it's racial, sexual. Ageism, all sorts of interesting things, and so I think when we, you know, it's worth highlighting the different methods because then you could see, wow, that that benefits a certain group, or uh, it, it comes up short for other groups, and, and you highlight how, particularly in the criminal justice system, uh, that's uh, you know a, a glaring source of inequality. So maybe I
1: start with the, an example from the criminal justice system, give folks a little bit of flavor for that, and then we can dive into the civil courts, which is fascinating. So the criminal justice system. We have to first start recognizing that there are many processes that are in play. But it's nice to at least think about saying that should be random. Vehicular manslaughter. Someone is run over by a car. It's tragic. The person dies. What happens to the driver? And what has been shown from a statistical analysis is if the victim was unemployed, homeless, black, or male, the chances of prosecution or having a longer sentence are lower. That is, people who fall into those categories are less protected by the law. Now, once again, this is a fairly random situation, a crime. Why should punishment vary based on who the victim is? It certainly should Justice should be blind, but clearly it's not. I live in New York City, and back in the 90s, we had uh, about 2,000 murders a year. Today, it's about 300 or so, so it's a lot safer. But all murders are not investigated the same either. There was a tragic case a few years ago of Karina Vetrano. Young woman, out jogging, was raped and murdered. Tragic situation. It captured media attention. At its peak, the New York Times reported that about 100 detectives were investigating that case. What about the other 300 murders that happened that year? Clearly, there weren't 100 detectives investigating every murder. Her life was deemed more valuable by the media attention that was allocated to it, by the public reaction, and corresponding by the amount of detective time allocated to it. Now, there I talk about value in terms of importance, but if we walk over to the civil court system, which is very much about dollars, and we think about situations where someone has died and a defendant has been found guilty, we'll still see huge ranges in terms of the settlements. We take the extreme cases because the extreme cases give us insight. So, of course, uh, many of us remember the civil court settlement for O.J. Simpson was for over $30 million for the uh, death of two victims. That's a tremendous amount of money. Clearly, the court was uh, deciding and sending a signal that those lives were highly valued. On the other hand, there's a famous case of Cheryl Thurston. She was a young woman in New York who had been In a care facility, she required severe care due to her medical conditions. She was not monitored when she was left alone while taking a bath. She slipped into a coma, died within 24 hours. Her sister sued the care facility. The judgment in that case was very clear. The care facility was negligent. But the settlement was for zero dollars. And the judge explained that Cheryl was not earning a salary. She never awoke to show to have suffered. And New York state law had no intrinsic value placed on human life. And the judge was so um, found disgusted by the lack of value placed on human life and law that she actually said that had the sister been chattel, like a cow or a chicken, then she it would have been easier to place
0: money. a dollar value on. They, you on. could
1: have gotten money if she had not been a human being, but because she was a human being, there was no intrinsic value and the settlement mm-hmm. would be zero dollars. So that's a tremendous range you see in civil courts.
0: And then there there are the the you know high profile economic cases you mentioned them of corporate liability of GM of, of Ford of uh, Altria, of Union Carbide uh, which crosses uh, cuts across borders I remember the Union Carbide case can you provide an example because I think that highlights the range between the OJ case of thirty million for two people and then other cases which are in the Union Carbide instance will be you know pennies on the dollar
1: absolutely so you know, corporations they do have to think about how much do they invest in improving safety of their products? Now, there are regulations. They have to abide by them. But then they have a choice of how much further they choose to go. And they will do a calculation. They will ask how much does it cost in terms of improving the safety of the product? And what will be the benefits in terms of less injuries, less deaths, and corresponding impact on brand? This is a, a pretty standard calculation. Now, as they do this, they have to put a value of human life. Uh, you had mentioned the Bhopal Indian. I, I remember this uh, myself when it happened. Uh, uh, the settlements there, the victims, uh, families of the victims were paid about $60,000 per victim. Now, just to be clear, this was 1984. It was a long time ago when the accident happened. But that should be contrasted with, for example, the recent Toyota acceleration failures where less than 100 Americans were killed. And the settlement came out to about $20 million per victim. Now, you hear a huge difference in those prices. Some of that is due to time, 1984 versus just a few years ago. But a lot of this has to do with location. What it does is it sends a message to car companies, industries in general, which is human life is valued differently in different countries. And that while they may need to invest far more in safety in the United States, in a country where, Life is not as well valued or protected. They can be more lax in their approach. That's the message that's being sent when they do that.
0: And so, in the case of the Ford Pinto, also from a couple decades ago, the company came to the conclusion that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, there was a flaw, but the uh, and it'll probably be lethal, but uh, it's just not worth fixing it because the dollar value, if you price the lives lost versus the dollar value of fixing it, it's quote, not worth it, end quote. My words, not theirs. Uh, and that's a pretty thats a pretty stark conclusion. But to some extent, every business that ever operated, whether they know it or not, is making that calculation. Um, Absolutely. As to the price and, of human life.
1: And to be perfectly fair to Ford, they used what was in the 70s, the value of human life that was recommended by their regulatory agency, right? So I'm not trying to totally defend Ford, but they were operating under the guidance of their own regulatory agency when they did that calculation. What uh, is striking about the Ford Pinto example is when the public became aware of that particular situation, they were living. I think uh, at the time in the 70s, uh, Mother Jones had put out an article really challenging uh, how Ford had pushed the elements of the calculation Uh, They uh, challenged that Ford had overestimated the cost of repairs, had underestimated the risk, and had underestimated the value of life. Um, As a result, the public really was livid. Uh, Ford paid a major price. They paid a major price in lawsuits that they lost. They also paid a major price in brands because this was in the 70s, and it is 2020, and we're still talking about the Ford Pinto case. And that's and, a lesson I, I wish companies learned as well, which is do the right things and you will find you have a positive sentiment that lasts a long time. Um,
0: so we live, in, we live in a litigious society. We also are faced every day that we get up and choose to get out of bed with risk. And we make decisions under conditions of uncertainty as to whether we turn left or turn right, uh, take the subway, don't take the subway, drive, take this bus, take that bus, drive the car, get on the airplane. What are that hot cup of coffee from McDonald's on the drive-thru? Extremely risky activity, as has been shown in the past. So, what, what is a, you know, at some point one can rail against the perceived injustice of this or the variability of injustice, but at what point in a complex society? You know, do we have to say we just acknowledge that uh, there is always going to be some risk in this case of, you know, uh, loss of life, though it could be just injury as well. And it's going to always be imperfect in putting a monetary value on on that, you know, crossing the street. uh, There's that risk. And uh, yet we have to go forward, even if the risk can never be perfectly calculated and and monetarily defined and offset.
1: And, and at its core, this, is, this starting point is where the regulator, regulatory agencies come in. Right? So they have a responsibility to help define what are acceptable and unacceptable levels of safety mechanisms, whether it's related to airbags and the safety with an airbag, whether it's related to foods and drugs, whether it's related to other aspects, whether it's a health uh, intervention. That's their purpose. And they have a standard process that they follow. Uh, It's well-documented, they have to publish what they're doing. As part of that, they do have to estimate costs and benefits. And uh, the good news is they have a process. Uh, It's certainly subject to lots of scrutiny and lots of uncertainties, uh, in particular as to what is the impact, right? They use your best science to try and estimate that, but it's somewhat unclear. And, you know, I know we'll uh, probably get a chance to wrap up at the end, but one of the biggest challenges as people have a conversation about, quote unquote, opening up the economy related to the COVID situation is the models for trying to understand what does this mean in terms of risk to the population? What are the scenarios, the possibilities of injuries, sicknesses, deaths at risk and the corresponding impact on the economy? It's not anywhere near as clear cut science. As it is to look at arsenic in the water or pollutants from a coal factory, which is the more traditional role of a regulatory agency. So they might have. So we're, the we're place, seeing but the a chapter map is much more difficult.
0: We're seeing a chapter of your book played out in real time here. The chapter, the unwritten chapter, basically the the uh, end notes, uh, the uh, the epilogue chapter, which highlights exactly the points made in your book which is there is no single answer it's actually kind of messy there are in regulatory societies there's going to be one approach in a market-based society there are going to be other it can be the labor theory of value it can be a cost-benefit analysis and then we turn on the television after we read your book and we see the exact same arguments made on the evening news uh horrific as it is uh so it is uh, again we uh you know uh, we we bring it to that topic that uh, that. This is very real. What you're writing about the the methods that have been used in the past, the recent past, the last three decades, uh, four decades, uh, the questions that are answered and the questions that are unanswered, and then you get governors and and senior officials raising the exact same issues right here, right now.
1: A- absolutely true. But you know, let's step back uh, just a little bit in time because if you um, recall early March, the situation we kept hearing stories of. Tom Cruise is sick and uh, a famous politician is uh, is sick or someone else uh, or a, a basketball player. Uh, but average people could not get tests, right? Those who were um, elite in terms of, wealth, fame had access to these very limited tests. Uh, and I'll tell you a quick personal story. So first week in March, I was sick, fever, chills, pretty heavy cough. I live in New York City, by the way. So uh, I went to my urgent care facility doctor said, nah, "Probably, maybe you have it, maybe you don't, but we have no tests, so just go home, stay home. I'm not going to give you any drugs. There's nothing I can do for you." Now, obviously, if I had been a different person, uh, had I <laughs> had I already sold 10 million copies of this book, I would have been treated differently. But it's uh, that's one aspect. The other aspects that we have to recognize is the My apologies I did not
0: get to. I- I did not get to your book. This was on the pile. I too have been delayed the last six weeks. I, I had I gotten to this book sooner, perhaps that would have been different. My my, my I'm glad you're feel obviously you're feeling better. You sound quite quite well. And I I'm, Thank I'm you. Glad no, to hear I, that.
1: I appreciate that. I, I I'm fine now. Um but uh you know it, it all passed to my family. So we went from one to one to one. Uh, that said, And in,
0: they have all recovered, I hope. They've all recovered as
1: well. at
0: this point. So that's okay. uh,
1: the good news. Um But the inequalities that I discussed in the book, once you start talking about anything that is income-based, whether it's the mechanisms that were used on September 11th, whether it's what's used in the civil court system, uh, income-based judgments have implicit in it all of the biases related to racial disparities in income, gender disparities in income, the choices people make about being whether it's a caregiver or working part-time or, or the career choices have huge impacts on how much they earn. So when you drive the valuation of someone's life and how much they are protected based on income, you leave certain populations highly susceptible. And, and we're seeing that played out now, but I'd love to step back just uh, a little bit to, to talk about life insurance, because I, I love that that's a space where we get to figure out price tags ourselves.
0: Please, yes, and it's it's on also a little bit more up my bailiwick, not specifically, but the fact that that's been since the rise of modern statistics. Um, in the, and they're not, uh, you know, the 16th, 17, 18th century, the, the rise of life insurance industry and the rise of statistics have gone hand in hand. You're a data scientist. Uh, it really became, it was a, a precarious business to be a writer of life insurance until you could get the math right. And uh, that's gotten, you know, better over, over the years. So uh, a fascinating topic onto, unto itself. Yeah,
1: I, I agree. It's a, it's a fascinating topic. And, you know, if I start with, uh, thinking about what makes life insurance different from any other means of valuing life, it's it's not being done by someone else. It's not being done by in an office. It's not being done by an actuary. It's not being done by a health economist. It's not being done by jurors in a civil court. I can do that calculation. And so, for example, if I look at my family and I try to figure out what is the Amount of money they would need to replace my future income. I can do that. I can calculate roughly what I think I'll earn over the next X number of years that I'm working, and it'll give me an estimate. Or I can compute how much I think they'll need. So, what is that need that I think they'll have over the next X number of years? And that gives me an idea of how much dollar figures, in theory, I might want to insure myself for. Of course, I need to play that out versus what money I already have, and can I afford the premiums? In practice, I think most people look at the affordability. They pick a number that "quote unquote" feels good. But I do have the opportunity to do that calculation, and it can be quite humbling. Uh, and you know, anyone who uh, has uh, you know, dependents knows that they have to start thinking about how many more years will they need to be able to support the person before they might be able to live off of, whether it's retirements or uh, Social Security, or, or if you happen to have a good 401k or pension plan.
0: Yeah, I I recently stopped. I let a term policy lapse because I did the math in my head, not as much as I should have statistically, but I did the math in my head saying, you know, I'm on the other – I'm on the far slope of that curve, uh, of that hill, and uh, I'm just going to let this lapse. The insurance policy was for when my child was younger and uh, child's older, and uh, I'm going to just let this lapse.
1: And, and, you know, you might be making a very rational choice without even doing, uh, without pulling out the spreadsheet and crunching the numbers. Um, people often have good intuition about these things. I'm a big fan of actually crunching the numbers <laughs> to, to try and validate it. But, you know, for myself, these are calculations that I think about uh, as I kind of look and see how many more years do I expect to work? What would happen to me uh, and, and my own family? Once again, I'm putting a dollar figure on my own life, and this one is mostly an income-driven one versus, for example, what we described with the regulatory agencies where they have a single figure for everyone. So these purposes, why I'm doing the calculation, the perspective, who's doing it, make a huge difference. When we're talking about that for-profit company, they're thinking about their bottom line, their profit and loss statement. The regulatory agencies are thinking about overall society. They have a different perspective.
0: It does sound like you did come out, particularly after the 9-11 in Feinberg, that you do come out for all the math that you as a data scientist and health economist can, could uh, deploy on this issue and actually come up with customized numbers. I, I do sense that you, to uh, address the fact that in practice, the outcomes are tend to be highly prejudicial, that you would prefer a uh and again we don't have the option because this is an open and free society and different entities can do whatever they want but i i i sense that you would prefer a single number because it's just it gets rid of the it may not it may not be a great number but it gets rid of the bias issue and it's vastly easier once there is a, a kind of a single number that probably gets adjusted over time for um, various factors, but uh, am I reading too much into your your preferences, or, or is that uh, a I, fair no, summary? I think,
1: I think that's that's a fair summary, but I I recognize there's limitations to that. So what I my take is I like to have equality be the starting point. So we could start with that, and then maybe we need to move that needle around a little bit. Uh, the issue with it, just saying every life is valued the same, is then it doesn't reward. The, the the person who put in the effort. It doesn't reward uh, that effort. Uh, it also doesn't separate out what I say, the extremes. And it, 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 my undergrad was in physics before I went on to study statistics and biomedical engineering. And in physics, what we look is we look at the extremes and see, does it make sense? And valuing all lives the same to me is a good starting point, but I can't equate the murderer and the Nobel Peace Prize winner. I can't say this right, right. equally. I know there's something wrong if I just say that this is always true for everyone. So I think, though, on average, that's a better way to protect more people than to drive it off of something like income, where what you'll find is. The most dangerous products, the most dangerous situations will always be pushed to those who have the least money, the least political protection, the not right. in my neighborhood situation will always uh, occur if you allow those who are wealthier to have higher valuations of life and to have higher levels of protection.
0: And to use one of your metaphors, that the Ford Pinto problem probably would not have occurred if it had been designed to be for um, you know uh, the high-end cars for a more affluent population. Though That may be reading too much back into history, but it would be a conclusion that one could make.
1: Well, to your point, what, you know, we can bring in it into modern times. So the next car company who's doing their calculation has to put in that dollar figure for what are they going to lose for every preventable death, right? Cause these calculations happen. And when they do that calculation, if they have to insert the $20 million per preventable death figure that Toyota just had to pay out, that will force them to put in a lot more safety mechanisms.
0: Then that Ford, the math, the, di- the number was different because of Ford, the number was different for Toyota, and now, therefore, everyone's going to be exposed, frankly, to the higher number, and therefore, the the automobile makers are going to have to take that into account.
1: Absolutely. And and there's a systematic progression that we've seen, um, not just in civil courts, but also in the estimates of value statistical life that people are valuing human life more and more and putting more protection there. So there's a positive in this. Uh, So companies are being challenged to make their products safer and safer. And and on their financial balance sheets, it's coming down to if they have to pay more in regulatory fines and in civil court judgments, they would rather put the extra safety mechanisms in place.
0: It does raise the issue, which you mentioned in, kind of in passing, uh, but you know the the our healthcare system has an issue with the value of life at the very very end, where we spend all of our resources in the last uh, few months of a person's life, and uh, that also raises unfortunately. Interesting and morally challenging questions, where we're we're uh, spending an enormous amount of time on a small slice of life and valuing life at that, in effect, de facto, if not de jure, de facto valuing life at at, at the very end. Um, and I I don't, there's obviously no easy answer for that either, but uh, it is an a troubling observation.
1: It it's it, it is um, you know the U.S. health system is just so different from that of any other country in the world for, for so many factors. And, you know, at the high end, we truly have some of the best hospitals, best medical research in the world. Uh, but our public health system is certainly on average lacking in many things. And the expenditure at the end of life is one big challenge, but we it's, you know, it put that in the long list with many, many other challenges and issues that we have. Uh, and yeah, I, I think There'd be a lot to learn from from really continuing to study what happens in other countries where they're able to have long life expectancies and have per capita expenses, much less than the United States.
0: Let me let me finish then with um, uh, the current situation. And I, I almost want to try and hopefully the answer is yes, a a positive note it's this interview is being recorded in the middle of april the the 20th of april it'll have a shelf life for 6 months or a year but as of the 20th of april uh are you seeing any progress in a uh, real-time experiment in valuing any life or are you seeing more of the kind of confusion that is the historical record are there any glimpses of clarity or is it is it uh too early and it's that's probably the answer it's just too early but en- any update from the front lines in this most you know this will be when inver uh hopefully there'll be a, a you know second edition revised edition of this book uh and obviously the current situation will, will constitute that that next chapter but is there any, any preview into that chapter that you can see, particularly one that you think is, is encouraging or discouraging, well, I have to ask?
1: Well, I, I do think that the current situation is forcing people to understand that this is not a theoretical dialogue, that day in, day out, this question of how you value people's lives impacts the risks that they are confronted with. It impacts not just safety, but it impacts the chances of Death itself. I think people are seeing that. We are seeing dollar figures being passed out left and right. We're seeing rules at a state level being proposed for who should get the limited number of ventilators. Uh, the MTA just offered half a million dollars to the families of any MTA employee in New York City who died from COVID-related situations, I should say, and any MTA employee, not just New York City. So there are dollar figures being handed out now. I think the biggest thing that I look to see, and to your point, it's quite early, is what does the public take from this? What is the long-term lesson as they realize that these dollar figures that we describe in this conversation in the book really are ubiquitous and they are having major, major impacts on their own personal safety and the safety of their families? That I think is Something that it seems like every maybe 10 years, a spotlight gets shown on this point and people get very agitated and then it somewhat goes away. And I think the spotlight is being focused much more than it ever was before. Whether it's the Ford Pinto case that got people excited back in the 70s, whether it was uh, actions taken by the Environmental Protection Agency uh, or the September 11th fund back in the uh, Bush Jr. administration or now, people see it. They get very passionate about it. Uh, but then they tend to move on. Uh, I think people are going to live with this passion much, much longer. And and we'll see what happens in terms of the public being able to influence the government policy.
0: Well, let's let's stop there and leave some for the uh, uh, the, the audience to to uh, read. Uh, you mentioned the the EPA. There are a lot of examples as well. We didn't really get to them as much, but the EPA has to deal with this all the time. And I, I do want to encourage listeners to uh, uh, get this book, *The Ultimate Price: The Value We Place on Life*. It will be on sale May 5th from the University of California. Uh, Howard uh, Friedman, a data scientist and health economist at Columbia University, has written really uh, a tremendous primer on this issue. And as you sit and read the, there are many reasons to to read this, but uh, unfortunately, one of the best ones right here right now may be as you read the news, uh, sit in front of the television in the evening. Uh, this is a helpful guide to understanding how these issues have been dealt with in the past. There is no simple solution, uh, but uh, uh, it is uh, useful to uh, to know how these issues have arisen in the past and been dealt with in the past. Howard, thank you so much uh, for for joining me on the show.
1: Thank you. It was really a pleasure.